As vice president of talent for Live Nation Canada, Harvey Cohen oversees touring shows and festivals across Canada for the world's largest entertainment company. Harvey was co-founder of Union Events, which grew to become Canada's largest independent concert promoter and one of the 50 largest in the world. Prior to being acquired by Live Nation in a high-profile acquisition in early 2016, Harvey has been responsible for the curation of talent for a number of North America's premier music festivals, including Chasing Summer Music Festival, Center of Gravity Sports and Music Festival, X Sonic Boom, One Love Music Festival, and of course, the list goes on. Go produce. This is Harvey Cohen. Yes, thank you, Harvey, so much for being here. Yeah, I want you to know that we do very much appreciate your time. So let's go ahead and make the most of it and go produce, shall we? All right, thanks for having me. It's an honor, it's a pleasure. The first segment that we like to kick it off with is called The Basics. This is how we just groove right into it. <laughs> what I like to start with in this segment is my favorite question. It, it, I find it really sets the tone for the whole interview. So I'll, I'll start off with it and I'll say, what's your first musical memory? Oh, shit. Yes. <laughs> first musical memory. Wow. Uh, probably like, listen, my mom, my mom and I was a little kid used to teach like aerobics and aqua size classes. So she had like a huge record collection that she'd make mixtapes together to like teach classes with. So like sitting on the living room floor playing some like they're still around somewhere. I should go dig into her basement and they're probably not in great condition, but there's some pretty, there's a lot of the old Springsteen's and a lot of the, you know, the old uh, late seventies, early eighties tunes. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so did you ever find yourself like digging through them or are you just around her as she was making you small the record. No, we would dig through them. But, uh, you know, at the time, I don't think you really had a good understanding of what you were looking at. And you probably would have been touching them with baby hands. I'm sure we were ripping them up and bending them in half. And it's probably a lot of uh, busted up album jackets at this point. But you never got in trouble because of mother, mother, motherly love. Of course. Still to this day. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, do you think that at all influenced the rest of how you your career unfolded? You know what? I, I honestly don't think so. We... I wasn't, I like, I have no musical skill to say the least. Like I have, you know, that's why I'm beside and behind the stage because uh, growing up like grade six band, maybe for a few months here and there. And really, you know, we weren't necessarily a musical uh, family per se. So it was obviously, we always had a great appreciation for music. There was always music playing in the house, but you know, I don't, would it, would I say it led me into the, uh, the concert promotion being in the music business? No, probably not. I think I, got into the music business more because I never wanted to have what I used to say a real job. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's that's scary. Real jobs. Yeah. So when you were getting into this world of promotion, what was the first lesson that the industry taught you? Oh, wow. First lesson the industry taught me is, uh, uh, you know what? I, I always say uh, the guy who mentored me in this business was a guy named Greg Curtis who um, anybody in the Canadian music industry probably knows him. He books McEwen Hall at the university as he owns Tooth Blackner Presents. Um, he mentored me. It's, I got into the business of the Students' Union at the University of Calgary when I was in school. And his first lesson that he always said, he was like, when you're working with artists, he's like, you can't be a fan. He's like, you're there. We're in business together. He's like, so you're not taking photos. I think it's, we're there. We're coworkers. So it's like treat everybody with the same respect you want as a coworker and you're just there to do business. Has that was that ever a struggle for you? Did you have to adjust to that? No, I don't think so. But it was at the time I was, you know, maybe a little shocked by it. I'm like, well, of course, like, why wouldn't you want to get a photo with a huge musician or somebody you've always loved your whole life? But then when the reality set into that, I was like, you know, you're totally right. Because at that point, when you're, you know, you see book a band or, you know, any level of the business, that person comes in the door and I'm the promoter. They're the artists. We're coworkers at that point. The minute I go, Hey man, can I get a photo with you? All of a sudden it's not that business anymore. And all of a sudden I'm a fan and it's, they have to maybe have their backup a little bit of like, oh, okay, you know what? Maybe this person, you know, is, I can't be as free with these people. And I, you know, I find that to be very important. And to this day, I still tell people like that, you know, that I'm helping get into the business or even just friends of mine that maybe are coming out to a show or want to come hang out. I was like, Hey, here's the rule though. Like we're all there. We're all friends, no photos. And yeah. it's funny that some people are like, what do you mean? This is no, this is, I can't believe I'm going to meet this person. I can't photo. I'm like, no, because at this point you're, we're friends. You're not a fan. So, and uh, you know, I still stand by it and I believe in it to this day. And it's left a lot of people that have, uh, that have come out with me not so happy in the end of the day. And I'm like, yeah, too bad. 
that's how it is. If if you're if you're with me, this is these are the rules. These are the terms. Yeah. Did 100%. you ever 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 have a slip? Uh no. You know, there's sometimes there's artists that you become friends with over the years that so all of a sudden you're taking social photos, big groups of people that just happens to include them, or, or once in a while, you know, they might ask and say, hey your friends want a photo. And if they offer say, Hey, your friends want to have a photo. No problem. Absolutely. Go on in there. But it's the ask that is, uh, you know, I always find to be a little bit of the Robin, I think, um, is what people should stay away from. If you can in, in the business sense, if you're a fan and you meet somebody, it's like, take a photo all day long. It's these are lifelong memories. That's what celebrities are for, but it's, you know, from the industry standpoint, that's just something I, something I believe in. Very cool. Very cool. My next question is, I don't want to, I don't want to dive into the world of COVID because that's, I mean, very engulfing as it is. But what is your great, greatest challenge that you currently face? Uh, you know what? I think the greatest challenge we face, and it's it's COVID, but it's not, is as we come back out of the pandemic, we're going to see this massive, we've, we're seeing massive pent-up demand for people wanting to go out. But we're also seeing this massive influx of talent is that we've got 14, 15, 16 months of backed-up tours all saying like, like ultimately people tour because they make money. That's their job. So they're going, I haven't made money in the last year and a half. So I need to go out. So all of 20, all of 21, they're going, okay, well, we got a tour in 22. And then you have all the tours that were already scheduled for 22 going, I need to go out obviously, because I still need to make money. So we're going to have two and a half, three times the volume potentially. And we're going to have a population that most people are coming out of this with less money in their pocket. So it's, you know, it's, it's going to be, is there going to be enough money to go around to make sure everybody wins? Now I'm curious in terms of the money going around because it is quite obvious that the top tiers will collect a lot of the money. Are they going to be losing a little bit so that artists with less credibility and less pull will gain some money? Do you think that's leveling off or how, how do you think the distribution might change? I don't think anybody's going to lose money per se because artists that are the top tier artists, you know, they bring out these massive shows and there's, you know, huge bills that go along with it. And so ultimately they will have to make business decisions of are the promoters going to pay them enough money to warrant the expense or do they maybe wait a year and let things level out a little bit or do they just come out full tilt and take their chances on it? Which the promoters are taking the same chances with them, obviously. Yeah. Do you think one way to cover their basis would be to increase prices, ticket prices? Uh, no, it, it, that's the, always can be the answer. Is it going to be the answer? I don't think so. It's, I think everybody's cognizant of people's disposable income is, is probably pretty tight. The one nice thing we do have is that refund rates on tours have been quite low. You know, it's, uh, I don't have the exact stats off the top of my head, but I want to say like on Live Nation stuff that I've seen out there, it's 80% plus tickets were held onto from all the rescheduled and postponed shows from 20 and 21. So, you know, for a lot of people, that money was long, that money was long spent for a lot of those people already. That's, that's so a lot higher than I would have anticipated. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's surprisingly high on, you know, and it, it fluctuates on the different types of shows, but uh, overall it's well over 80%. So, you know, a lot of those people, if you spent that money in mid 2019 for a show that was going to be in earlier, mid 2020, that means it's been out of your pocket for two years now. So you're probably, you know, you're not refunding it now. It's, oh, and there's another tour coming up. Now you have a new ticket to buy with new money that's in your pocket. <laughs> hey, I mean, like, you're not. Hopefully wrong. that's the premise, at least. Yeah, you're Hopefully not that's wrong. the case. And then, and then at the same time, hopefully they won't complain about being able to attend two different tours. You know, like, you're still. 100%. To do it. And yeah. we're seeing it. You know, Canada's obviously quite far behind in a number of the other markets. But, you know, we're starting to see stuff going on sale in Canada. But, you know, in the U.S. and Europe overseas like sales have been phenomenally high for, uh, for shows that have gone on sale, which is great news. Everybody knows that you talk to anybody in the streets, people are, you know, are pumped to go back out when they get the chance to. And obviously different age demographics will probably get back out there a little bit slower. You know, younger people will be, you know, they're beating down the doors to go back out again. So, but the demand has proven time and time again, so far worldwide that, that, um, that the demand is there and people are itching to get back out. I'm a little upset that Canada is a little behind, but in the countries that are a little bit ahead of the game, have you seen any health restrictions that they may have implemented that allow them to get to where they are in terms of events? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, different territories are all over the map in terms of what they're allowing. You know, some, you look at some of the places in the States, you look at the Floridas, you look at Texas, it's a little bit of, uh, 
you know, the Wild West, where there's very few restrictions, if any. Then you get into some of the European territories that are, you know, limited capacities, distancing, certain, you know, a lot of test markets. Um, Europe in particular, a lot of the governments have been very proactive about, you know, having these guinea pig test events where people are going in, getting tested. And as part of going to the events, there's post-testing to see what kind of spread there is and trying to learn from it and have the science of it where, unfortunately, Canada's taken a bit of a... Uh, you know, lockdown approach to say it gently and are just not willing to really uh, move the needle at all right now, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Totally with it. Totally with it. That is a huge challenge. And we did kind of dive into COVID as well, but there are a lot of ways that we can connect this to, to outside of COVID down the road. So, so thank you for sharing all of that with us. That was the basics. We're moving nicely into our next segment. The next segment is called Ooh. the speed round. So what we're doing in the speed round is I'm going to throw 20 questions at you at a rapid pace. You have to answer them with only one word. It can be yes, no, both, neither. Okay. And then you, at the end of them, you have the opportunity to justify them. Um, But other than that, let's just have some fun. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Do it. What is your favorite music genre? Wow. Three. There, there's that was my answer. Wow, you don't call wow. the shots. There I we go. Call okay, the shots, okay, oh, that's hilarious. Of the past events you've been a part of, which is your favorite name? Favorite name, artist name, you mean? No, of the event, Chasing Summer. Chasing Summers, yeah, it's, it's two words. Hey, all good, all good. <laughs> if movie is to watch, then Netflix is to movies. Repeat that if movie is to watch, then Netflix is to. Do you prefer to read or to watch movies? Read. 100%. read. You are the recipient of the Western Canadian Music Awards Talent Buyer of the Year in 2007, correct? Correct. What is your favorite time of day? Late, late, late. At the end of the day, you want a nice big glass of? Chocolate cocoa. Not booze. <laughs> you have ownership interest in Alberta's largest event labor and security solutions. That's backstore support services and the Ace Nightclub in Calgary. Kind of interesting. Yes. Yes. Where is your favorite place in the world? Maui. Breakfast or dinner? Dinner. Do you want to continue dabbling in movie production? Not a chance. <laughs> Where's your next vacation spot? <laughs> TBA could be next week. Do you have any nicknames? No. Is the future of <laughs> yes, I do actually. Jumungus. Jumungus. <laughs> Is the future of Canadian events bleak? Not at all. Absolutely not. What is your favorite animal or plant? Animal or plant? Uh, dog. Who is an artist that you currently find the most exciting? Wow. Oh man, so you can't narrow that one down to one. We're gonna have to come back to that come one. Back to that one. How many years have you been at this for? Twenty-four. I don't know. Twenty-five, twenty-four, somewhere in there. Would you go to the moon? Absolutely. What's your favorite snack? Chocolate chips. Nightclubs or festivals? Festivals. We made it through, Harvey. We made it through. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Couple hiccups. About that was that. highly entertaining. So, so in terms of clarifications, one of the first questions that I asked you, you said that Chasing Summer was your favorite name. Why? Uh, it's just a festival that I built total ground up, zero to 100. And uh, it's kind of, it's always been my baby, no matter what I've done. Totally fair, totally fair. And then ownership interests. I find this quite interesting. This happened a little bit into your career, um, but being part of backstage support services in the Ace Nightclub in Calgary, can you share a little bit about that briefly? Oh yeah, I thought it was supposed to be one word answers. So uh, that's what oh, I- Oh, no, 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 yeah. Now, now, we're, now we're in the justification part. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah, no, no, we, uh, backstage support, which is now called Experience Ambassadors, grew out of a need in the market locally in Calgary when we were the promoter, but we were also finding that having suppliers that we couldn't necessarily get, um, staffing that we needed so it started off more as stagehands and riggers and then so we started that and then it expanded into event security and uh it just grew and grew so and you know same with the venues it was 
Um, you know, just like companies like Live Nation owned venues, it became one of the things when we had uh, union events, it was we needed venues. We'd originally we opened the Starlight Room and then, uh, you know, the Ace came later on. Um, just, you know, great place to put shows and bring good music to people. That's what you got to do, hey? That yep. is what you got to do. I want to I want to clarify on the film production. So I know you have some experience with Red State and we're going to yeah. talk about that a little bit further. Okay. <laughs> But why the resounding no? <laughs> well, the only reason I ever got into film production was uh, my business partner in Union Events, Naylan McMillan, has a background in film and a, a heavy interest in it. And uh, so we had a few film projects across our plates and Red State being the biggest of them also. Kevin Smith, who's you know obviously a renowned uh, director, producer, and actor. Um, we worked with him a ton. We, took, we toured him across Canada across the U.S. into Europe, even on his uh, spoken word tours. And through that, you know, a business relationship and a personal relationship grew, especially between Kevin and Nalen. And uh, through that, we uh, we executive produced and invested in a few different films, either Red State directly that Kevin produced and a couple others that were people in his camp worked on. And uh, I, it's just not really for me. It was, they, were they financial successes? Not particularly. Were they a ton of work? And it's just, it's not something that I really have a passion in. So if we made a boatload of money in it, I'm sure I could learn the passion, but, uh, you know, they weren't, uh, they weren't blowing down the doors, you know, but it was a great experience. It was something really outside of my, outside of my comfort level and outside of my real no. So, you know, having a movie that premiered at Sundance was definitely a cool experience. Get to go down there and just kind of see a different world of the entertainment business that I had no real, uh, firsthand knowledge of before. So it was, you know, definitely something for the memoirs, but not something I need to do a lot of. Fair, fair. Very nice. Yeah. That's cool. Cause at any point in your career, you can try something new and it's okay to say, I tried it and I don't like it and I'm going to continue doing with whatever I want to do. And who knows? Maybe you do like it a little bit more. So, so thank you for sharing that. That brings us to the very end of the speed round. Super quick. Next up, we've got What's Yo Take? Grumpy. We, we caught the grumpy sound guy sleeping there. We caught the grumpy sound. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Nah, so for What's Yo Take? Harvey, we're going to be presenting you with different statements or scenarios, and we only want your perspective. Nice and easy. <clears throat> All right. What's your take on I, charitable work? What got you into the charitable space? Uh, everybody should do it. And ultimately, I think everybody needs a little bit of good karma in their life. And um, uh, personally, I, you know, growing up, I like to think I was fairly lucky. Um, you know, growing up in a great family and was taught to give back and it's kind of stuck with me the whole time. It's, we're all very lucky in what we do. And, um, you know, there's a lot of less fortunate people out there. And when you can give back, you certainly should do it all you can. We're ultimately in the position to serve others. And, and, and that means charitable at points in time. Um, but that's, that's very cool. I'm now a little curious in terms of events for like charitable events versus for-profit events. Are there differences amongst that? Oh, yeah, 100%. It's ultimately for-profit events, put food on the table and put money back into the, into the tax system. You know, it but keeps more, the economy... Sorry, well. more so to, in terms of organizing them and executing them, like, are there different elements that you have to include? What does that look like? Uh, well, it's the, the big charity events that we've done, you know, for the most part, like, we'll donate our time to help book events, et cetera. Um, you know, the big ones we've done are in 2014, maybe it was when there was a big flood in Calgary, uh, a yeah. team of got together and produced Alberta flooded, which raised uh, 2.2 million, $2. million. Yeah. We, you know, we raised over $2 million and it was a, you know, a team of a small group of us got together and all of a sudden I was like, Hey, we need to do something. So what are we going to do? And we got on the phone and called all the bands and and lucky enough, Nickelback, you know, being an Alberta band, they actually were the one that picked up the phone and their agent called us and said, hey, the boys, you know, they're living in the States at this point, but boys want to know what they can do. Is something going on? And we're like, yeah, we're going to do something at McMahon Stadium in Calgary. And they were like, they're in. Tell us what we got to do. And which was amazing. Like, you obviously don't get one of the biggest bands in the world calling you going, hey, what can we do? So that was a great start to it. And then it really just became about we called all the vendors that we've worked with, all of our suppliers and said, hey. You know, we've done a lot of business over the years. We put a lot of money in your pocket. It's time to give back. And I can be a little bit heavy handed sometimes in my approach. And it wasn't really an ask if, if suppliers and people were going to give us a hand. It was a bit of a tell for most of them. And nobody, nobody put up a big fight. It was, hey, we're going to all do this together and we're going to give back and we're going to raise a big shit ton of money. 
and we're going to give back to the city. And we did 30,000 people or something at McMahon Stadium and we put a call out to all the bands and great. And then a few years later, there was a big fire up in Fort McMurray and yep. magically we got the band back together and there, lo and behold, there was Nickelback again saying, what can we do? And uh, we put 30, 40,000 people into Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton and uh, raised just as much money again. That's super wild. I'm curious in terms of when you're getting these calls from, from Nickelback or other artists, are you having to negotiate a deal with them or are they volunteering their time just like you are? They're volunteering their time. It's uh, everybody was on their own dime to get there. Uh, you know, we went to some of our corporate partners, the airlines and said, Hey, we need some help here. Can we get some, some comp airline tickets, et cetera. But there was no money uh, allocated out for expenses period. There was the expectation that everybody was, uh, was doing it on their own. That's super impressive and very beautiful to hear. I mean, when, when a community is under duress and you're part of that community, you should, you should do everything that you can to elevate and remove the stressors. So it's, it's very cool to, have to, that, have, like, to see that. And also, at least at the time in 2013, the Alberta Flood Aid was the largest concert ever held in Calgary. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah, because McMahon Stadium had stopped doing concerts in the late 70s for the most part, and uh, there'd never been something that big before that. And uh, we produced a couple things over the years since then at McMahon, but nothing that was uh, even close to the scope. Very impressive, very impressive. And were there any differences in terms of organizing the events between the Flood Aid and the Beast Fire? Uh, not, you know what, not particularly. The only real difference was that in Calgary, you know, it was where the actual flood had happened, where in Edmonton, you know, the fire had been in Fort McMurray. So there was a bit of a conjoined effort between the two where all the, you know, major promotion, et cetera, and the actual production of the event was in Edmonton. But we actually did a bit of a teaser event in Fort McMurray the morning of the show. Um, Brett Kissel and his band and myself and a couple other crew flew up we had uh, somebody donated a private jet for us we actually flew up to Fort McMurray that morning Brett did a free show in Fort McMurray as a as a give back to the people of Fort McMurray who are the ones who would actually you know suffer the effects which is awesome so we had thousands of people outside it was a pancake breakfast Brett did a free show for everybody we got back on the plane flew back to Edmonton and then played again that night and uh at Commonwealth Stadium so it was it was different in that sense that in Calgary we were right in the heart of it where in Fort McMurray we were a little bit removed in Edmonton but obviously having Commonwealth Stadium at our disposal and, you know, the drawing power and suppliers, vendors, et cetera. But we welcomed them down, you know, thousands of people came from Fort McMurray for the show too, which was really awesome to see. And, you know, we dignity the prime minister came to both events and it was, you know, this, the support was unbelievable. It just felt great to be able to give back. It's a ton of work, obviously. And it's even, it's more work to produce that than it is to produce a big show when you're just writing checks to people. This is volunteers, contributions, and then producing a stadium show on super short notice again, which is a big undertaking. Roughly how much time did you have? Uh, fire aid, flood aid, I think we did it in two or three weeks. Uh, fire aid, I think we had a little bit longer. Oh, yeah, no, it was, uh, they were rushed to the finishes. These were, you know, and from the, the other side too, it of not only just doing work for charity was we basically all put our companies on the sidelines for a few weeks of going, all right, we're, you know, all hands on deck. Time to get at it. So, yeah, that's love. But worth worth every second of the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's something that will stay with the people forever. I mean, like they won't forget that. Yeah. That's that's awesome. Cool. Ultimately the dollars went to a great cause and the foundations that distributed the money were able to do a lot of good with it, which is really all that matters. None of us, none of us do it for the kudos. It's, you know, we just want to see the money go to good places and, uh, and see people get back on the feet, which is, which is great. That's awesome. Charitable work is amazing, but let's talk a little bit about money now. What's your take on music festivals boosting the economy for the various regions that hold them? Oh, the economic impact on festivals. It's funny enough, it's, you see it as very few politicians and governments understand the economic impact that festivals have. We had an economic impact study done on Chasing Summer uh, a few years ago in conjunction with Tourism Calgary. And it's tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, when we give, when we put those numbers in front of government, they're very surprised. And seeing, you know, the numbers that come out of the really big ones, like I think uh, EDC Vegas, if I'm not mistaken, puts three or 400 million into the Nevada economy. Wow. Alone. 
right? And it's, you know, I'm not I talking about chump change at that point. Summer. But that's a whole different level. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, no, and, and that's the thing. It's chasing summer as a whole. It's, you know, we're talking 18, 20,000 people a day, two days, and it's putting 10, 12, 15 million dollars into the Alberta economy. And then scale that up to EDC or Coachella or Ultras. It's, it's astronomical the amount of money that, um, that goes back into the economy from these festivals that I think a lot of people don't realize. That's huge. Okay, so, so Chasing Summer, obviously, at this point in time, is for not today, but it has contributed to the economy. But what about at the beginning, the first couple of years? What were some of the struggles that you had starting it up and growing it to what it became, has become? Uh, I would say the regulatory process of it, it's... We ran into problems. We, the original venue was for Calgary in downtown Calgary, which is amazing. Green space right in the middle of the city. Fantastic. You know, so originally it was getting the community on board. Needless to say, they weren't all that excited about having, there'd been some other music festivals at Fort Calgary. There was a couple annual stampede festivals there. They're generally rock and country stuff. Having dance music in the middle of downtown. The association didn't love the idea by any means. Uh, we had worked with the president of the community association on X-Fest and a couple other things. We'd done at Fort Calgary. So we had a relationship there. And, but it took, you know, a good few years to really show them that we, we were there to work with them, not against them. And they came totally around on it. And we did everything, all of our festivals there that we did, like X-Fest and some of the other ones. We would distribute free tickets to anyone that lived within a few block radius of the festival, got free tickets to come down um, on um you know other ones not isn't chasing summer but we did virgin festival in calgary there in 2008 and we actually there's a senior center right across the street we actually got a bus that took seniors grocery shopping one evening during the festival to just give them something to do so they didn't have to listen to us blasting tunes all night long and then but the regulatory side of it was we ended up there's a city councillor in that ward who uh likes to bring her personal tastes sometimes into uh, her politics and she was okay with rock music, so those festivals are fine. And she decided she didn't like dance music and the uh, crowd it attracted and unilaterally pushed us out of the downtown. And, you know, even the community association was going, what's going on? We This brings thousands of people into a neighborhood that are spending dough in restaurants and shops, everything nearby, and now you're taking them out of the community again. So it was, uh, it was very controversial. And uh, to this day, as you can tell, I still have pretty serious disdain for the whole situation. But you know, made to do with what we're going to do. And uh, that's in the early years, especially in, uh, you know, in dance music festivals and hip hop, it, you know, the challenges can be community, you know, and just making sure that you're, you're being a good neighbor and not just coming in, ruining people's weekends and getting the hell out and hopefully putting money in your pocket. It's about going back there year after year and being good neighbors. Understood. I've got two questions around that. The first is, is there a particular technique that you apply in order to maintain a positive relationship with these people throughout time, because maybe they start a little uneasy. Maybe this is also tied into the second question where is there something that you can do when perhaps a city member is not on your side to change the tides? Maybe it's the same uh, technique strategy. Yeah. You know, there's strategies on both and fortunately, unfortunately, most of them came from, uh, from mistakes and learning and, and just trial and error. Um, Community association, like I said, it's about being a good neighbor and showing these people you care. It's uh, it's not just about, some people have the attitude of like, well, we have to clean up. We're inside our fence and what goes on outside. That's not my problem. Like I have nothing. I can't control people outside the fence. It's like, no, you can actually. You can hire six extra people to go out and clean up garbage in a few block radius around the neighborhood. You can um, try and direct people. So like using Fort Calgary as the example, the nearest train station is about two blocks away. So it was, we always aim to, okay, how are we going to exit people out? What's the most direct way that we can guide people to the train if they're going in that direction, as opposed to spilling them out over six or eight blocks around the downtown, making noise loud, causing trouble. It's guide people as much as you can, putting some portable toilets out on, you know, a couple corners of the few blocks around there, cost a few bucks. You don't have people peeing on some old lady's lawn needlessly right and and it's about communicating with the community association and with the uh government officials around there both very elected and non-elected officials going to the city council and going hey we're looking at doing this festival this is what we want to do what can we do what can do better if you're in support like how can you work with us with the community association right there's almost an endless list of things you can do and then it's giving back to the community yet again so 
like Chasing Summer now is in an area of Calgary that uh, parts of it are um, a little bit lower income per se. And so we want to give back. So we went to the city councilor and we said, hey, is there a music program in this neighborhood that we can support with some money to, to show once again that we care? And so we ended up uh, this past year, we made a $5,000 donation to the uh, Calgary International Orchestra, which is a youth orchestra for underprivileged kids that, you know, donates music equipment. And he's, and we went and, you know, watched the performance. And it was great. All right. Thank you for that. Or that. <laughs> thank you so much for that response. My next question for you is around artists. What's your take on artists being easy to talent by? Uh, you know what? It's, it's, it, there's give and take in all of it. There's some artists are very particular in certain things and some artists make things very simple and uh, you win some, you lose some at the end of the day, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So, so what are top three qualities that make booking an artist easy or top three that make it difficult about them? Uh, easiest. They sell tons of tickets. You can deal with a lot of, deal with a lot of headaches if they sell a ton of tickets, but I, uh, you know what, to be honest, it's, um, it's finding the artists that want to have a true relationship with the promoter. That is not just about grabbing as much cash as possible. It's about making the right decisions, the right venues, the right dates, and just getting the ticket price right. Like, obviously, like I said before, it's, this is their job. They have to go out, they have to make money. They need to make X to go out on the road and make it worth their time. But it's also about finding the right deal that's going to get butts and seats. Because if I lose money on a show, I'm unlikely to bring you back. Ultimately, if people keep losing money, you don't have a career anymore. And good agents and good managers know they need good promoters to work with and want to just keep going because you can make money endlessly for a lifetime if you have the right relationship. The right relationship. And okay. So assuming you find the right relationship gradually over time, how do you establish the right ticket price? Does that change? How do you even start there? Uh, you know what? It's as much as it's a science, it's a, it's a guessing game. It's really... Uh, you can use there's you know there's analytics out there as much as you want to try and find comparable shows comparable markets so say i'm looking at uh pearl jam or somebody's on a tour and i go okay well they've never played this market before but what's a comparable market so vancouver might be comparable to seattle or portland or san francisco so what did they charge there before how did they do you can try and base things on that and you can look at okay what other artists have played these particular markets if you're looking at doing something in toronto that's never played there it's like all right well it's done new york it's done montreal um, really it's about just trying to find that sweet spot and sometimes you miss and you can, you know, you can scale venues, assuming you're in a seated venue, it's, you can start with P1s, P2s, P3s. And as you start going, you can always be moving, moving tickets around as you need to, to, to adjust if you can. And sometimes you have the, a good problem to have is that maybe things slammed out immediately and you think, oh, I probably could have charged a little bit more for this, but ah, you learn it for next time. But really it's, you know, it's a bit of a, it's market research and just using the historicals. Does it? Did you find that it happens more often that you charge too little or too much? Well, I don't think you can ever answer that question. It's you know, if a show doesn't sell, you go, oh, maybe the tickets were too high. You'll see it sometimes. Say you're in a theater or an arena, and also all your cheap tickets are gone, but your top tickets are still there. You know, you've overpriced it. So then you can try and adjust as you go. But sometimes, you know, if the momentum's gone, the momentum's gone. Um, where on the flip side, if everything sells out immediately. You can always say, oh, I must have charged too little. Or maybe you just charged it perfectly right and you hit the sweet spot. So yeah. it's, there's once again, there's no magic answer to it. But you, that's the nice thing about very modern ticketing systems. Unlike the old days when you print off your 2000 tickets and stick them in a record shop and hope they sold. It's you're not exactly rescaling the house very often. Where now it can literally be done in, in real time as shows are on sale. You know, they can be, tickets can be moving like to the second in price. Yeah, which is very convenient. Other than not selling, what makes it difficult to purchase a specific artist? Um, them not selling tickets? Right. Like if well, there's, yeah. there's artists you might not want to book because they aren't great to work with, whether it's their agent, their manager, or the artist themselves. If, you know, at this day and age, uh, you know, you don't have time to work with people that are just ruthless to deal with. And sometimes you have to. Ultimately, if there's a massive artist that's going to sell a ton of tickets. Like I said, you, you put up with a lot of crap for that, but it's, it's never a great experience and you want to work with people that are in it together with you. So, um, you know, that, that's the not selling tickets, not having a great relationship. And ultimately sometimes you, you know, artists will do deals with a specific promoter or a specific, uh, specific venue that will preclude others from, uh, from having that opportunity to book them. 
makes sense, makes sense. Okay, and a bonus question to this. Top three funniest rider requests. Oh, God. Uh, funniest rider requests. Some of them are just outright stupid. Let's say, look, uh, I'm, I'm with that too. Yeah, you know, you'll get somebody will ask for a pony or guys that ask for drugs right on the rider. We're like, big bag of weed. You're like, you're an idiot. Especially because like some places, you know, Canada where it's now legal, it's still something I personally, and I certainly wouldn't speak for the company, but I just don't do it. I don't, I try not to buy cigarettes, drugs, even if weed's legal. It's just like, go, you can go do those things yourself. Um, you know, we're here to provide you catering, not, uh, not lifestyle. Um, so, but you have to remember some of these artists are traveling to parts of the world where drugs are not very well taken. So it's stupidity is more the case than anything. Uh, you know, I have heard from a couple artists. So the reason they'll sometimes put stupid things on there is to be like, let's see if the promoter is actually reading it or if they just give everybody the same shit. Right. So it'll be like a framed picture of your best friend in the dressing room. And some people get a good laugh out of it. And some people get collectibles. Uh, we had uh, an electronic act, Canadian guys that wanted um, uh, magic playing cards. But they wanted like, I, I can't remember the exact, I don't play magic, but it was like, 10 or 100 packs it was like hundreds of dollars they wanted on their rider or playing cards and it was like we're not here to fuel your collectible collection so it was like beat and they were well, it's on the rider and i used a number of expletives and was like you can beat it how does that sound and if you don't like it don't come play right and it was like, well we get it every other show and i was like well then some of the other promoters are morons and they're getting taken for a ride and i'm going to tell everybody else now i'm going to call them up and tell them they shouldn't buy them for you too yes Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. All right. So we, we, we spent a little bit of time already speaking about film production and Red State, but what is your take on the execution of that movie? It was quite interesting. There's a lot of background. Um, I can maybe even share a little bit of a synopsis about that if you'd like, or sure. if you want to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but we'll, we'll touch on this quickly before the next section. This is a movie that follows a group of Christian fundamentalists who abduct torture, and murder those who they see as deviants. It's an unsettling, polarizing film, largely because there are clearly no good guys. And this is also Kevin Smith's first horror film. You were part of the team. How did that look like? And, and then we'll touch a little bit on the protest, and then we'll move on to the next segment. Uh, like, it, was, it was great. Like I said, it was uh, just, you know, seeing a Hollywood movie top to bottom was, you know, really, it was a new experience, and it was, it was very interesting to be a part of. And you know, from being on the set, I, you know, watched a million movies in my life, but actually being on the set of uh, where they shot the kind of big finale scene um, on this ranch in the middle of nowhere, California, that I can't even remember the name of the town, um, to see what it looks like in person, to watch it, to then to see what it looks like on the big screen is just so incredibly different. I think I can't remember a year it was, it was years ago, and I, and I still had an old Blackberry at the time, and if I look in my file somewhere on my computer, I've got a, a little handheld video of my on my BlackBerry of uh, of this big shootout scene, and then seeing it on the big screen is just incredible. And then, but you know, John Goodman, huge actor. It's like you said, it was going back to the point of like, you're not a fan, but I'm certainly like, I've been around musicians my entire adult life. It's not really a big swipe, but then you're like, oh, John Goodman, that guy's a big fucking actor. I'm just like, but then it's like, oh, you know, Kevin's like, hey, come on, let's introduce you to John. I was like, hey, you know, next time you try to just be personal because I. Do I really have anything in common with the guy? No, probably not, but great chat, you know, nice, nice and easy. And so just to see that element of it top to bottom and just learning the business where in the concert business, we make thousands and thousands of small investments in every concert, right? One by one. So we put up this much money, try to bring it back. Another show, another show, another show where movie is totally different game. We're putting up 10 million, 100 million, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on these big movies. Okay, let's see if we get it back. So there's no hedging risk. Obviously, the studios are doing it at the same level as, as big concert promoters. But it's, you know, a company like our nation that's doing tens of thousands of concerts. You know, the biggest movie studio is still, they're hedging it on a far fewer number. So you miss on something. You have like, a, what was that giant flop, Waterworld, that costume movie? Like, you have that flop. There's, you, you got problems. Yeah. Problems to say the least. Yeah. Thank you so much, Harvey. That is what's your take. We're going to be moving swiftly. Here I am again with this word swiftly. I'm going I'm to remove <laughs> my vocabulary. But we're jumping into the next segment. The next segment is called Community Queries. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what we're going to be doing here. Here we go. Ah. 
here we go is I've got a couple of fans that asked questions for you and I've got them recorded. So I'm just going to play them here and then we'll, we'll jump into that. So the first question is from Christian Luna. He's in software and he's in music. And this is his question. Hey, um, my question is, what's the hardest part, the most difficult part about setting up a concert slash festival? What's the hardest part about putting on a concert or festival? Would you say that there's one thing that's the most challenging above the rest? Uh, getting the right talent. Ultimately, it's if you don't have the right bands or the right DJs or the right artists to, that are going to sell the tickets, you've got nothing. You'd have the best concept in the world if you don't have the right artists, you got nothing. Yeah, because they, they convey the message to the, the rest. Okay, interesting. Yeah, you know, there's, there's five festivals in the world probably that can sell out without announcing artists. And that's probably EDC, Coachella, a couple others. So ultimately, without you can have you know Coachella's incredible festival. You can sell it out without it. You do that once, and you put up a shit lineup. It's not going to sell out again. So it's always without yeah, the artist. Yeah, you're as good as your last show. Okay, interesting. Here is our next question. This is from the Koala. He is a rapper in London, Ontario, and this okay. is his question. For large scale tours, how do you get uh, connected with those people who organize these tours and? Um, what are your options as an independent artist who wants to tour uh, with artists with big names? So I'm assuming he wants to open for artists on tour. Yeah. And Aspire, uh, you, ultimately those, those slots are almost always through the artists, the headliners. So whether it's being involved, whether it's their label, through their manager or with the artist directly, that's the promoter generally has very, very little impact um, in choosing who the support are on especially at the top, top level. So if you want to get out at the theater and arena level, it's uh, working with, like you said, it's signing to the agency manager or having a relationship directly with that artist. Fantastic. Big shout out to The Koala. He's on Instagram at The Koala with two A's at the end. Our last guest or our last fan question is from Sam Salvo. And she is a musician out on the west side of Canada. So what's up, everybody? My name is Sam Salvo. Um stoked about the opportunity and a big shout out to go produce for putting this stuff on super rad dude that's running the page there um and yeah so my, my question for the interviewee today is uh what are you looking for like when you go to hire someone for kind of like a background like sound tech and you know such positions at live uh live concerts um you know not so much like obviously performing but the background stuff um, yeah, I look forward to hearing your response because I'm trying to step foot into that in here in Vancouver as soon as possible. So, um, yeah, thanks so much. And thanks to Guild Produce. And if you want to check out the music, hit up the Instagram. It's underscore S-A-M-S-A-L-V-O underscore Sam Salvo. Thanks so much. Take care, guys. That's Sam. All right. Awesome. What you got? Uh, in terms of like hiring staff and talking about sound texts and staffing at the events, it's generally through the suppliers we use. Per se, you know, the promoter, we won't go out and hire an individual sound tech. So we're bringing in a sound company that's going to um, handle our sound, lighting company, security company, um, you know, and the venues will handle, you know, most of the internal staffing themselves. So it's really when you're out at shows, seeing I uh, go up, talk to the sound guy, see who they work for, look at the road case on the side of the stage, see what company's name is on it. Um, you know, go talk to the venue, see who, talk to the manager, see if they're hiring people. It's really what it is. And then I'll have to check out Sam's music. Hey, nice. Thank you, Sam, for that. Thank you for your response, Harvey. That is the community queries. We've got one final segment. The last segment is called Clear the Air. I like that one. I like that one. We've been playing around with the transition noises. In Clear the Air, our final segment, I'm going to ask you to bring clarity to these more dense questions. We're, we're talking more about union events and Live Nation here. So the first question I got for you is, how was Union Events created? Uh, really, it was, I was getting out of university. I'd been involved with the Students' Union, like I said earlier, um, through the Events Commission and, you know, through the elected, some elected positions and then hired positions, just learning the game, putting on concerts. And it was time for me, I, like I said, I was finishing university. I was like, I don't really want a real job and got some money saved up and I, I, I think there were some pretty good parties. So maybe time to throw my uh, hat in the ring and, um, Naylan McMillan, who I mentioned earlier, who was my business partner in union, he was from Edmonton and he had a concert company that he'd uh, been doing on his own called BAD concerts. 
out of Edmonton for, you know, five, six, seven years in the uh, mid to late 90s. And he focused on mainly, um, you know, a lot of like rock, punk rock, metal. And coming in out of the, the late 90s, you know, dance and hip hop, it obviously really exploded at that point. And that was kind of a focus for me at that point. And so he still kept his other company that dealt with more on the rock side. And then together, he was starting to delve a little bit more into the dance side as well, because, you know, the community in Edmonton, uh, there was a fairly sizable after hours community at the time there. And so he wanted to get into that, but it didn't really fit the mold of what he was doing on his other projects. So we decided we'd get together and do some con, do some parties together. And one thing led to another, and it was very slow and organic growth. Like we started the company in 2000 and you know, we both kind of worked out of our houses in Calgary and Edmonton and just slowly grew, started working into more territories. Then it was like, got real offices. And then, you know, eventually we were very Western Canadian based for a really long time. And then uh, we got a fairly aggressive nudge from a couple agents to uh, to start moving into the East. And uh, so that was what we, um, we bought a company called REMG, which Jonathan Ramos's company was, you know, very well established at the time. And uh, John and his team came over and um, that became our Toronto office. And we just kept going from there. And um, John eventually moved on to his, uh, to be over at Inc. with all those guys. And then uh, we, uh, we ended up selling the company to Live Nation and jumped over there. Wow. Okay. We're going to talk a little bit of the transition there, but before we get to that, this is a two-part question. First, what is your most memorable screw up with union <coughs> events before Live Nations? And then what was your first major success? <laughs> Um, I feel like we're going to really enjoy this wow. response. First major screw up. Uh, this is where we really learn, you know? Yeah. You know what? Um, as uh, just going to have to get to the top of the list of that big list. Um, you know, one that's really memorable for me and it, it seems a little weird and hopefully I can verbalize it in just as weird as like anybody that knows me will say that I'm a fairly thrifty fellow and I manage my budgets incredibly well. Um, we did a festival in 2008 at McMahon stadium. Actually, it was, uh, called the monsters of rock and it was a takeoff of Oz fest. And so we did it in conjunction with Ozzy. He was the headliner. So Sharon Osbourne was heavily involved in the process top to bottom, which was challenging to say the least, especially at the time when, like I said, we had only done a couple outdoor festivals to so be jumping into something of that size was, was a real, you know, was a real move for us. and it was the expenses were just starting to spiral out of control and Sharon and her team were not all that concerned about it. It was like, this is what we need. And if you don't like it too bad, like this is, this is Ozzy Osbourne and you're going to do this and this and this and this and this. It's like, okay, yes, Sharon. Yes, Sharon. And we had to book last minute. They were like, Oh, we need like 30 extra hotel rooms for a bunch of extra crew guys. And at the time, you know, it was 30 rooms, a couple hundred bucks a night for eight nights each of them while they were in the town. And it was, tens of thousands of dollars and i was like what else can we do what else can we do what else can we do and it was the middle of summer and university of calgary is two blocks from mcmahon stadium and so i'm looking around and on their website they're talking about these that basically they turn the dorms into hotel rooms and i'm going it's like, ah, 50 bucks a night and private rooms and private like I, what, what's wrong with this and there's a couple of people in my background going i don't know if this is a great idea and i'm just like don't worry it's fine it's fine. look at how much money we're saving it's fine look at the pictures it looks fine it looks fine and you have to remember like people that tour with Ozzy are been around for a very long time. This isn't, you know, a club band driving around in a van. These are like real touring guys. And I, they showed up and I guess it was like dorm beds with no sheets. There was no towels. It was a little bit of like, you're staying in a hostel. Almost. And the phone call was not a pleasant one. Let's say that to say the least. And money at that point did not matter. And everybody was moving to the West End, I think at the drop of a hat. And it was so, what saved me $10,000 probably cost me 25 in the big picture because uh, at that point it was, and it, it wasn't even that, you know what? And by that point, it wasn't about the money at all. It was just the, it was a terrible look. It was a terrible move on my part that at the time it was like, you know, everything led me to believe it was the right move. Should I've got in my car and driven up there and taken a look at it and been like, Oh shit, this is not the right move. Yeah, this will be fine. Like got 8 million other things on the go. So yeah. It's going to be fine. And those, all those other birds in my office chirping in my ear going, are you out of your mind? Ah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That was that one. I don't guarantee that wasn't the biggest screw up of my career, but it's certainly one that stands out a lot. That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you have something that 
stands out that was your first major success? Big success. Like we all, you know, when we win, we all win. It's a great, you know, a lot of great shows, a lot of great memories. It's, I always say like one of the greatest, you know, wins you can ever have outside of money is like standing in a, you know, on the side of the stage of a giant festival or in the floor of an arena or in a packed club and just watching the crowd go crazy. So, um, you know, some of our festivals that, you know, have been very successful, you know, some of the big wins, like we had Wu-Tang Clan headline Center Gravity a few years ago in Kelowna and nobody had ever, the whole Wu-Tang Clan had never been to Canada. They just can't get across the border. So they were like, uh, we had said, we're going to try and get all nine guys together. And they don't even generally tour together that much anymore because without getting into the background, one member kind of owns the name and he gets to decide how the money gets carved up. And if there's enough money, then who comes? And if not, they fill it in with, you know, some of these outliers. And I said, no, well, here's the deal. I'm going to pay you great money, but I want everybody there. And we, we even knew there was one member that had a pretty checkered pass. And we're like, he's down to come, but there's a very slim chance. And lo and behold, we got all nine guys in. And uh, like, I didn't even, it was, I, the driver called him away from the airport and called him. He was like, yeah, I got everybody. And I was like, well, obviously, so-and-so didn't get in. He was like, no, we got all nine. I was like, are you sure? I'm like, turn around. Can you count again? They're like, no, no, everybody's here. And I'm like, no, no, I, I, I don't. Yeah, He's like, no, no, they're all here. And uh, small of a victory as it is, it's just one that I like to uh, get a good chuckle out of. It was, you know, it was the first time. We obviously with ODB not around anymore. This is the nine surviving members of the clan. Yes, yes. Still a fun story, though. Very oh, cool. totally. Very cool. Now... A little bit more to the transition from union events to Live Nation Canada. How do you, we'll start off with this one. How do you manage your time between the two? Because I know union events still operates. But just nope, no, 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 that's nope, not all the company. Uh, no. Yeah, no, the uh, oh, and so some of the articles back then, it was no, it eventually everything was transitioned in. It, uh, it was a slow process over a few months, but as we played out the remaining union business we had on the books over the kind of the first year, then everything moved over into Live Nation. Okay, awesome. So even before the transition began, you were working with Live Nation. You've had an experience with them, correct? Oh, yeah. We had partnered with, you know, what, what is currently Live Nation, that before that was House of Blues Concerts Canada, and before that was Universal Concerts Canada. Um, we had partnered hundreds of shows over the years with, with the guys over there, and we had personal relationships with them. So even, um, uh, you know, go to weddings of, you know, like our guys in our office even back when we were competitors per se and partners on on a lot of shows together so we'd worked together with most of the guys for 10 10 plus years 15 years before we ever became part of the company did they do anything in specific in particular to to ask you to be part of the team and or did you have any reservations when that happened uh no it was a conversation that had been going on for a few years kind of on and off and the company we grown to a point where we were at a bit of a turning point where we'd done as much as we could. We were always self-funded. We hadn't taken on any debt. We hadn't taken in any investors. And you know, it was a fair sizable company. We were doing seven, 800 shows a year across the country and tens of millions of dollars in ticket sales. And it was all funded. So, you know, we were taking on risk that was probably well over what we should have been. And, you know, a lot of sleepless nights of like, if this doesn't work. We got a problem on our hands. Really like this house I'm living in, but I'll well, see what happens. Yeah. Um, but we got to the point where it was, we, we'd kind of hit a, the cusp of what we could do, um, where we were at. So we had the option at that point where we had to bring in some outside money or we had to bring in a partner or we had to find what that next step looked like. So we, you know, there was some, some different opportunities that had crossed our plate. And like I said, we'd had long time relationships with most of the guys and ladies at, you know, the kind of the top end of, uh, live nation and, so out of the options we had, that was uh, what we deemed to be our best opportunity. And, uh, you know, like I said, it had been some loose conversations for a few years about whether we'd be interested in uh, in being acquired. And it was just, it was the right time at that point. We had a really rough summer that year with weather on a couple festivals that canceled. And so, you know, the the reality of the risks we were taking became very prevalent. And uh, Live Nation was, was certainly, a, you know, a company I always had worked closely with. And great people there. And so it was the reserve, yes, any reservations. Yeah. Having a real job. Like I talked about earlier and all of a sudden it was, you know, before it was like, if I burned off, if I went and lost a hundred grand on a show, like obviously I was not happy and was very upset and shitting myself, but yeah, it was my, my mistake. Shouldn't have booked that show. Time to find a way to make that money back. 
Now, obviously, you're playing with somebody else's money and you have to answer to somebody for it as opposed to going, well, that was a bad move. You're actually answering for your job. And, and it's, a, so it's a totally different game. And ultimately, just the reality, like we do our thing, but having to actually answer to somebody. And once again, I say it all the time. People are like, how is it? How was it? You know, it's all of a sudden it was, it's been five years, which has flown by. They're like, how is it? I go, way better than I ever expected it would be. And I always go, 85, 15 good, which is way better than I thought. And it's like any job. And even when I was doing my own thing, I wouldn't say I was 85, 15 happy because I was dealing with, you know, it was a small, big company. It was, you know, I was dealing with the HR, legal, on and on and on. Now it's like, oh, legal issue? Hey, Live Nation lawyer guy, here you go. Sounds like a you problem to me. Come on, let me know what you need. Where, right, so we get to focus on creating, building, and, you know, putting on events, which is, which is why we all got into this business. That's huge. So at this point in time, or actually before I ask that question, you came on as VP of talent, correct? Yeah. Did you just, is that part of the negotiation that you had in terms of how am I going to start? How is my role going to fit into Live Nation? Yeah, per se. I've never really honestly been big on titles per se. Even like when we were at Union Events, we never, we didn't have titles for the longest time. It was, I, what do we care? We're all part of the same team. And we almost got forced into titles based on just the growth of the business of people are like, well, who are you? What do you do? Right. And it was always like, I, I, I just kind of do everything or right. And so the title didn't really matter. It was just more about fitting into the ecosystem because Live Nation is such a giant company. It was just fitting in like, where do you fit in and what are you going to do to mark out? Right. I just want to make sure that if that was the decision we made to go over there was to be able to make sure that I was able to create and build what I wanted to do. And so, you know, and, and to see how that fit in with the rest of the team. That's awesome. One final question that I have in terms of the decisions that are made at Live Nation, what kinds of decisions do you get to make with your role, I don't want to. I don't want to like stick too much to the titles, but in your day to day, well, we get to go out and you know risk a lot of money. Ultimately, even talking about like the decisions we make are about who we want to book, who venues we want to we want to look at. Whether and there's ultimately the main job is booking talent and producing events, but it can skew out into are there other business opportunities for the company? Whether there's um, acquisitions of other projects or venues or you know or I drive down the street in any city in Canada and go, oh, that's a cool looking building. I wonder if we could turn that into a venue, right? And so we get to go out and explore. And the, the great thing about Live Nation, which I wasn't necessarily that familiar with before, was just how collaborative of a company it is, which is fantastic. It's So not only is it a global company and the resources you have at hand, like you talk about everybody, like, how do you figure out how much to charge for a ticket? Back in the union days, it was a lot more difficult. Now it's like I can go into Live Nation system and go, I've got access to a hundred cities where this tour has been in the past. I get to see and the, the data and the analytics and the resources and the people to reach out to is outstanding. But um, we also have a ton of freedom, which I was actually a little bit surprised at how big of a company it is. That's very interesting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have expected any of that either. So thank you yeah. so much for sharing. That does bring us to the very end, Harvey. Uh, I do want to ask you for any closing remarks, if you have any. No, I, thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate it. This is great help. And you know, uh, thanks to the, um, the people that inputted the questions as well. So hopefully they got a little bit of info and hopefully people learned a little bit today as opposed to a bit of story time. I can speak for myself and the other people in this room. We're all nodding. Uh, thank you so much for your contributions. Before we wrap this up, I want to know, are, is there anywhere our listeners can find you? No, no I'm on Instagram, Jumungus403. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll make sure to add that to the show notes. There it is. Uh, no, yeah, no, it's um, thanks again for having me. This, that was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Harvey. We out. This episode is brought to you by thecharts.com. If you're a producer or beat maker looking to build your beat commerce business in less time, thecharts.com can help. Remember that you can sign up for free and start selling your beats and instrumentals today at thecharts.com. Big shout out to all parties involved. You can find more value at our website at goproduce.ca. Connect with me on Instagram at go.produce. If you're on YouTube, hit subscribe. If you're on Apple or Spotify, make sure to hit download. This will really help us grow our community. I'm Big Lou, and this is Go Produce.